Hi, Nicholas. Great to see you this week. Hi, Titan. So uh, I thought this week we could talk about an article that you recently sent me, uh, which was titled Kneading the Eggs. Um, maybe you could start by telling us a little bit about the article and then describe what, what do you mean by eggs in this article? Uh, yeah, in this metaphor, in this, in the title of this. Piece. So, if you watch a great movie called Annie Hall, at the very end of Annie Hall, Woody Allen tells this joke, which he then says sums up life. And the joke is that a man visits the psychiatrist and says to the psychiatrist, "I'm not here for myself. I'm worried about my brother." The psychiatrist says, "What's the problem?" And the bro he said, "Well, my brother, he he thinks he's a chicken." And the psychiatrist says, well, why don't you, why don't you tell him, uh, you know, give him the bad news or the good news? He's not a chicken. And uh, he, the, this guy says, well, we need the eggs. And that's, I put that in the category of, I've got a particular category of joke, which is a joke that gets better the older you get. <laughs> and that's firmly in it. There's only a few, actually. And... Um, and the more the, I thought that was a sort of just a sort of zany, silly joke. And of course, you realize, I think I've realized that uh, it's not uh, a zany, silly joke. We are, you know, life is has such a is so there's such a depth in life of things that are unacknowledged and, un, and in some sense unacknowledgeable that we're always playing that these 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 possibilities of us being all part of a kind of madness, uh, uh, something that doesn't make any sense. Our life's built from those things in many ways. And so this is a joke that seemed to me, well, and then it sort of dawned on me, I've actually written a, quite a few things about kneading the eggs and it dawned on me that uh, I should try and make a proper job of writing an essay about how bureaucracies and disciplines like my discipline of economics have this this great drive, um, like an actor on a stage, and I give the analogy in the essay, an actor on the stage can't remember quite how a sentence ends. And so he'll just until he gets to the rest of the line and then goes on with the scene and everyone remembers where they are and so on. And life is like that, right down to this conversation, uh, which is that we're constantly, uh, you know, kind of keeping the show on the road. And uh, what happens in, in organisations is that... Um, uh, well, well, this story that I've told puts a real premium on trying to be mindful of the truth of situations, and it shows you how easy it is to be drawn into the into the theatricality of pretending, and that's what I think is a a major explanation for how bad bureaucracies can be, how bad political discourse can be, and a clue to what we could do about it. So you said in this essay that there was a, a famous quote about, uh, I think, by Lord Acton, Correct. about public life being rowing in one 
Rowling teaches you the, the secrets to public life. Maybe you can sure. explain that. Yeah, yeah, on. yeah. So, so the other joke is a joke that I took out. Uh, so, so for 20, 30, I mean, I first heard this joke when I was probably about 15 and our prime minister of the time, Gough Whitlam, uh, a very cultivated fellow, a bit crazy, <laughs> uh, quite, uh, made this, uh, cited this joke. And it's Lord Acton, uh, a famous, I think, conservative fellow, uh, a liberal, really. Um, so maybe that makes him not conservative in the, at the turn of the 20th century, which is roughly where this quote comes from. And he just said in a kind of a, in a way that you can imagine people swilling the brandy as he's talking over at dinner, and he said, I've always thought that rowing is the perfect preparation for public life because it enables you to go in one direction while you face in the other. And so that's a nice joke, and it's a nice joke about what politicians do, and anyone who's watched Yes Minister can appreciate that as well. And yet, uh, and so I would use it to embellish articles that I might write about the idiocies of bureaucracy or just the general dysfunction of bureaucracy. And writing an article uh, in 2020, I think it was, uh, about a big report on, um, on um, strategies for... Uh, uh, on evaluation strategies for programs about Indigenous people. I was writing this article. Uh, I was writing it with a heavy heart because I was arguing that people I had a lot of respect for and real affection for were basically producing a complete turkey of a report, that this report was more part of the problem than part of the solution despite their very best intentions. And what they hadn't done was they hadn't taken account of this performative aspect of politics and of all the structures that are that are brought into play. And so I took this joke out of the role of an embellishment and turned it into a, the fundamental uh, explanatory fulcrum of the of the essay. Um, and so it's the same content as it was before, but I'm really saying, hey, this is we can't. This isn't just a uh, you know. This isn't just a funny joke. It's this. It it takes us to the substance of our problem, and it's one of the reasons why I say in this needing the eggs piece the that my next piece with it that's where the theme is jokes. That um, if you want to know who's writing in a way that's insightful about politics and bureaucracy, don't go to a learned journal. Because academics are as pompous as hell, they they don't have and they have no they have no methodology for exploring well not, not no powerful methodologies for exploring the the dissonance between what people say and what they do. Where do you go? You go to humour. You go to Yes Minister. There's a program in Australia called Utopia. Um, you go to jokes, and they start to give you the vibe. Uh, the vibe of the the issue, the vibe of the problem, and then you try and think about it imaginatively, but sort of carefully and as rigorously as you can. Interesting. So, in terms of it, let's say, if you imagine this this uh, this kind of inescapable, in some ways, situation where you know, as 
as Woody Allen says, well, at the end of the day, you still you still need the eggs. Yeah, right? like that's right. Uh, you can't. Um, you can't do without them in some sense. It, or if you do, yeah. if you do without this bunch of eggs, you you don't. You shouldn't imagine that you can escape this dilemma. And yeah. and that's in fact a weakness of my essay, <laughs> because it's sort of written in the full flight of realizing how powerful this is to say mm. how people are kidding themselves and how much bullshit we're having to put up with, but it's too smart assed because it doesn't, it's not written from the perspective, the, the, if you like the tragic perspective or the fact that this is an artifact of human consciousness, that mm. human consciousness is the tip of an iceberg. Uh, as mm. Freud would have said, as numerous philosophers would have said in their different ways, uh, so we've got to try and cope with that. Um, Anyway, sorry, that's a bit of a digression. Well, I think it's actually very central to the point yeah. because yeah. if, I mean, the, the question you have to ask now is, well, what would you do? That's I right. mean, how would you, that's right. how do you tell that's right. the person this and, uh, you know, tell the person that he's not a chicken Yeah. or that, um, how do you, or how do you talk about that yeah. this distance? Yeah. I think you mentioned humor as a, as a response, and I, I do think that that's actually really important, and I do think that, that that's why comedy is so important, and it's always been such an important uh, topic. I mean, I don't think that anybody, for example, who studies, uh, you know, let's say Platonic philosophy should should go without reading Aristophanes' The Clouds, because yeah, yeah. that presents yeah. the same material that's from a right, different as a joke. perspective, or at least, at least it gives you that dimension yeah, yeah. to explore when you're yeah. thinking about these yeah, things. Yeah. And um, <clears throat> I mean, in terms of, you know, dealing with bureaucracy or whether it's corporate or government, I mean, I think there are a lot of examples of great of, of films and uh, works that have become kind of iconic and have a cult status. Like, uh, you know, in America, there's this movie Office Space about working in the in a company in the late 1990s that uh, became quite uh, popular among people at the time, and I think people still watch it. Though it does feel a little bit less relevant these uh, these days. Yeah. So, you know, once you've identified this, you make a joke about it. Is there a way in which you can approach this, or a way in which organizations can try to change to at least minimize the damage caused by this? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this, uh, uh, yeah. So, so this again connects up to a bunch of other sort of theme, uh, other things that I talk about. Um, there are, and it's a very, very deep question. Um, I guess what's so toxic about the situation is that so much of, say, corporate strategizing in an organisation, and this, therefore, I'm talking also about the private sector as much as the public sector, how much of this is a kind of role-playing by senior executives? And and when everybody gets together in an, on an away day and talks and says what should be our mission statement, then everyone is flattered by this idea that they're strategizing and so on. Um, and... So I think of that as a kind of terrible engine of destruction, of kind of cognitive destruction, because if you're on a way day, um, it's really a career-limiting move to say, look, I think this is bullshit. 
uh, sorry, I just don't think this is the way this company should, you know, uh, uh, my own personal view is that it, it, firstly, you can tell a lot about an away day by whether there's been a whole bunch of things leading up to it. But basically my own view about, and I've written some articles about this, um, my own view of strategy and and these of of working on these kinds of questions is to start at the bottom. Ask what things are exciting you about the company. What's pissing you off? What could we do about this? And then you kind of, as you do that, you start noticing. Oh well, if we fix that, that involves this, and you start knitting together a, a routine of trying to address issues. Um, so that's that's a kind of trying to connect reality with one's thought rather than have a whole lot of these nice sounding words and then you kind of backfill reality to it. Um, so so you can take, so that's my advice, if you like, at, to the top, uh, to say, don't do these farcical activities, uh, do things much more concrete, uh, in a much more concrete way. But the 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 other important question, which I try and address in this in this essay, I, I, the the two final sections are what should organisations do with this these these ideas that I'm presenting, and what should you do as a little a little grain of sand, <laughs> a little point of consciousness. And there, I do something again, which would shock and generally piss off a lot of people. I think which is that I liken, uh, I don't think I use these terms, but I liken life inside a large bureaucracy to life behind the Iron Curtain before the fall of the Berlin Wall, a life of lies and pseudo-life in which you tell, you, you speak about things in the manner that those at the top have invited you to speak about them and only in that way. And I think... I might have read this to you before, but I'm going to do it again. Um, there's this when I wrote after I wrote the that uh, essay on indigenous uh, strategy for indigenous evalu evaluating indigenous programs. I had a conversation with the Centre for Public Impact in London, and they said, "Well, it's funny. Your they didn't say my essay was long-winded, but it was long. <laughs> your uh, we've just published anonymously on our website." A um, an article, and it was about seven or eight hundred words, I think. And these are the first two paragraphs of it. I spent ten years of my life writing. I wrote neighbourhood plans, partnership strategies, the local area agreement, stretch targets, the sustainable community strategy, sub-regional infrastructure plans, and so on. I have a confession to make. Much of it was made up. It was fudged, spun, copied and pasted, cobbled together and attractively formatted. I told lies in themes, lies in groups, lies in pairs, strategic lies, operational lies, cross-cutting lies. I wrote hundreds of pages of nonsense. Some of it was my own, but most of it was collated from my colleagues across the organisation and brought together into a single document. Why did I do it? I did it because it was my job. <laughs> I've never talked to anyone who doesn't relate to that, even if they've never worked in a workplace. If they've gone to a school, they get that. And that really brings home to you um, this, I suppose, that's, that's a sort of agree that got driven by egregious needing the eggs problems. He needed the eggs. He had KPIs to meet. He had reports to write. 
it, everyone knows what a, what sort of report is expected, and it's certainly not actually to tell the truth as you as as you see it. It is to tell the truth in inverted commas as you've been trained to see it, as as the organisation has trained itself to look upon this. So you can't lie. You can't say. Uh, you can't make stuff up. You can't say we treated 500,000 patients when you when you treated uh, 520 patients. Uh, but but there are all sorts of ways in which you get you get to say things. So this is saying I'm saying that life in bureaucracies has a terrible. One of the reasons things are so bad, um, and in private sector bureaucracies, uh, they're, not nearly, they're not quite as bad because there's lots of market competition. And if you kid yourself for too long, someone will just come along and eat your lunch. But anyway, in bureaucracies, this is a horrible problem because the people at the top set themselves up in order for those beneath them to please them and for them to uh, say, well, you've done a good job and you haven't done a good job. With information that these people give them, and that's a, that's a that's a not going to end well. Uh, and so then you are, I think, in the exact same position uh, as Václav Havel said, the people in in Eastern Europe were before the fall of the Berlin Wall, that they are leading a kind of pseudo life with a, an ideology which which pervades everything. And he tells a story about a person who gets a sign sent to him by the government and the sign says, he, he's selling groceries, the sign says, workers of the world unite. And he puts it up in, he knows it's kind of nonsense, but he puts it up in his shop because not putting it up in his shop is making a statement. And why would you do that? And in some senses, well, yeah, it'd be good if workers of the world united, you know, like it's it's not saying let's go and kill all Jewish people or something. It's a kind of a nice sentiment. And he talks about this this sort of bridge of pseudo-life, this bridge of lies to others in the same river of the same pseudo-life and the need to try and break out of that. He said uh, they need not accept the lie. It is enough for them to have accepted their life within it uh, for by this very fact, individuals confirm the system, fulfil the system, make the system, are the system. In everyone, there is some willingness to merge with the anonymous crowd and to flow comfortably along with it down the river of pseudo-life. So that's the situation that you're in. And what can you do about it? Well, you can try to cultivate a taste for uh, you know, just avoiding, you can just start very slowly, avoiding euphemisms that confuse. See how far you can test that. See who you know, see uh, who amongst your colleagues sees the world in a similar way. Um, and and then you're in this problem, then you're in this situation of choosing how much truth to tell. And I'm not in the business of telling people to be heroes. I am in the business of saying, try to practice truthfulness to oneself. It's not easy. Um, and then build from there. That's rather vague, but that's my, that's what I've said in the essay. So, well, one question I have though is, let's say we, we accept the proposition that this 
kind of environment is somehow unjust to the people who are, are forced to um, speak in a way that's untrue to fulfill their roles within an organization. Um, <clears throat> but insofar as, the, let's say, these value statements or these, uh, <clears throat> these mission statements, insofar as they allow or, or enable the organization to meet its goals, and let's assume that these goals are more or less, I'd say, positive for society, how do you think in some ways there's a there's like a kind of noble lie being played there or maybe some sort of that this deception is not as toxic as it might appear to be on the surface if the organization is better is more successful because of this yeah service. i'm not necessarily arguing this is the case yeah 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 well i think there it's, i certainly agree that once i've made my point a hundred is a hundred qualifications like the one you've suggested come up. Um, we've already agreed that we all need the eggs to some extent. So my answer to this is not never to go along with something, far from it. Um, I don't, I, I actually think, I don't know, um, you can say that as a noble lie, some of these things work. I know that, I, I don't, I'm not sort of, um, uh, you know, Google says its mission is to index the world's information or something. I mean, worse things have happened. <laughs> uh, it doesn't do any harm, and it does. It can do some good because it can be a, a kind of a one-line encapsulation of what what the the way the organisation sees something. Um, I see these things more. I mean, if you think of something like values, uh, again. I mean, my own, this is another very deep conversation, but my own, uh, I mean, I think what's happening here is that, from, well, let, let me just assert that values emerge from life. They don't emerge from words. Uh, if I say honesty is a value, so is respect, uh, so is justice, um, and so is clarity of thought. And they will all find their way into some contest with each other in different circumstances. Um, and um, and so what's going on is a is a kind of a falsification that I think sort of degrades reason, degrades practical reason, because lots of people think they're doing something when they agree on certain values. Um, but you only have to, as far as I'm concerned, I think I can knock this down very quickly by saying you just get this list of values, there's five or six of them, and then you say you pick a value that's pretty obviously not there. You say, so that's not important value to you. And, of course, they'll say, no, it is. Um, yeah. You know, and, and, and Price Waterhouse in Australia in 2014, I wrote a sort of satirical blog post about it, one of their five or six values was authenticity. You know, I mean, knock me down with a feather, give me a break. Um, and then two years later, it wasn't. So yeah. now be as inauthentic as you like. It's absurd. It's really kind of crazy. So, um, so, 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 let, so, so that's how I think about it. And, and what's happening here is that more and more bits of life are being kind of 
reached out of the life world, reached out of the relationships that people organically have with each other without specifying what they are and drawn over to this world of apparent accountability. But if you think in this case about what that accountability is, you can't nail the accountability down because when because whenever this whenever one value is in tension with somebody else, you can be hauled over the coals for not behaving according to the corporate values, and those corporate values will be imposed by those in authority. Um, so, um, so it's a real mess. But I'm, I sort of should double back to where you started by saying, can these things? be valuable? And I think the answer to that is yes. Uh, uh, so long as they're not kind of unwitting or witting cover-ups for real lies. So uh, always honesty, you know, we're honest. And, and when these weasel words like in everything we do, well, that's never happened. No one's ever been honest in everything they do or anything else in everything they do. Um, but if a if a leader wants to say, this is one of our core values, I'm going to defend anyone, uh, you know, we've been bad in the past on this, it's done us harm, and I'm really going to defend you if you, uh, if you get into a sticky situation by sticking up for this value, then it, can be, then it can be a good thing. But I think there would be lots of better ways to, to do that, more concrete, more problem-based, more situation-based ways to do that than these grandiose and ultimately uh, meaningless propositions, you know, uh, leadership by abstract nouns. I don't think that works. So I, I have a question, and I think it'll lead into another topic that uh, you wrote about, uh, not so much a focus of this, this particular essay, but it kind of really resonated with yeah. me, this idea of of what a professional is and what a new professionalism might look like. Yeah. But so let's say we have these values that are, are laid out by a group of top exec executives in the organization. Do you think that those are more valuable or more, let's say, targeted at, <clears throat> let's say, kind of a managerial group of people in the organization or the people at the ground? And do they have a difference in value? You know, if I'm, let's say, managing a group of people and I can think of that the company really cares about this, it might orient my work in, which is otherwise in some sense abstract, or does it really have importance that I can connect to the people who are actually doing the, let's say the, the real work in, within an organization, mm. uh, something along these lines? Yeah, I, I'm not sure. I, I think it's a good point that these values can be targeted at different people. Um, I guess, I, I let me not quite answer your question, but talk about professionalism. And I guess my idea for a new professionalism is a professionalism that I sort of, I've sort of, if I look back and sort of uh, try and work out where I've ended up, I, there are all kinds of lovely echoes like Adam Smith's theory of moral sentiments, his other, Adam Smith, the founder of modern economics, wrote The Wealth of Nations, but also wrote this book called The Theory of Moral Sentiments. In it, he talked about um, the way in which we are socialised 
by starting off very egotistical, starting off just being aware of ourselves, then, a, then becoming aware that we are looking at people other than ourselves and starting to be able to judge those people and make judgments about whether they're, we like them or don't like them, whether we think they're good people or bad people or did a good thing or did a bad thing. And then finally, beyond this, I don't know what age group you're at at this point, say five or something, but at some point it dawns on you that they're looking at you the way you're looking at them. And this is the great engine that Adam Smith argues socializes human beings. And it implies in its very baby form, in a nascent form, the idea of objectivity. And Smith says that we, at this point, uh, and, and you can just take this as a metaphor, or you can say it's a sort of more real sort of theory or a psychology or whatever, but Smith talks about um, at this point within, uh, within us comes the idea of an impartial spectator. We want other people to think well of us, we know that we lead our lives often outside their gaze. For a while, we like the idea that we can cheat. We can pretend to be one sort of person when they're watching and another sort of person when they're not. And we all do this anyway, uh, whether we like it or not to some extent. Um, and then it dawns on us that that's not worthy of us. It's not going to satisfy us. And so we try to, we have this idea of, of, behaving in our lives, thinking in our lives, valuing in our lives the way an impartial spectator, we would like an impartial spectator of our, of our, those things, of our values, our behavior to think well of us. We want deserve, we don't just want approbation. We don't want people's admiration. We want their deserved approbation. So what, what, what's the relevance of this to the, what I've been going on about eggs and so on and to professionalism? So the professionalism I want to encourage is a professionalism of self-transparency. And what I mean by that is, again, I'll use a quote from Richard Feynman, the great scientist, who said, in science, the first rule is you must not fool yourself and you are the easiest person to fool. So if some difficult operation like running a hospital is just being done by managers who don't know that much about medicine, and if they do, they're arranging everything into KPIs, you'll end up, they're encouraging people to get into that hierarchy of lies that I described earlier. Um, and this is, a plague in our world. It's true in it's true in universities where people are judged by how many articles they've published and so on, not by the quality of their work. And so, I and and if if a school or a hospital is trying to do something difficult, this managerial approach is ends in tears. So how can we do better? And my answer is, well, we sort of have the clue in the structure of professions that were that preceded this locust plague of managerialism. And the deal was that a professional went and learned a lot, uh, took on certain kind of Hippocratic oaths, um, and then we said, over to you. You tell us what to do. You're the expert. Now, the pro there are a bunch of problems with that. One problem is they should be dealing with evidence, but often they're not. Um, Professions are slow to change, but they should change much faster. 
following the evidence and also um, in that structure there's not a lot of pressure to respond to the evidence. Um, and there's a big class, it's freighted with class values. Upper, upper middle class people are these professionals. And they go and, you know, become counsellors for people who are just struggling to put things together in the outer suburbs and so on. Uh, so my idea of a new professionalism is tries to take the best of those things and to make it evidence-based, to make it based on reality and to build it from the field up on truth-telling. And it's probably too late in this discussion to, well, it is a good uh, introduction to another discussion about what sort of institutional uh, w w what sort of institutional framework might encourage that? Um, so that's that's what that's what I would like to see. Yeah, that that that's what I would like to see people trying to build. I think I've built a sort of sketch of the the basic conceptual ideas, and then we need people to experiment with them, prototype them in different situations, and see what works, if anything, whether I'm having a lender myself uh, or whether there's something quite powerful there which could produce a different kind of truth-telling from the bottom up. Uh, yeah. that's, that's the holy grail, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that's a really fascinating uh, area to explore. And it's, it's really interesting these days people like to tell you uh, the job that your your children will have doesn't exist yet, or something along these lines. Yeah. But I don't know if I, I really buy that. I mean, to some degree. Yeah. I don't know. Um, you know the job the jobs that were around when when my you know my parents' generation are still very much around, and uh, they've maybe changed form, and a few things have have sort of yeah. gone away. Like, uh, um, and I think we could talk about that whole topic of. Uh, Automation and the the way in which jobs change is also an interesting one yeah. we could explore yeah. more. But well, 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 just to throw in that Toyota, this is one of my little things. Uh, that part of my thinking about a new professionalism comes from Toyota production system, yeah. which tries to build a bottom up system of accountability. People's yeah. an accountability to the company through self accountability. Uh, and they and they uh, knocked it out of the park. They quadrupled. They 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 uh, their labor productivity was four times the companies that twenty years previously they were copying in America. Mm. Uh, and that's this alternative process. So I think it's a very exciting possibility. Um, yeah. But we have to try and see if we can do it. Yeah. Well. I <laughs> I think this is definitely something we can explore uh, in a future week. Uh, so, but uh, it's great to talk uh, as always. Yep. And um, we will, yeah, we'll continue this conversation next time. Sounds great. Okay. Take care. Thanks.